0: Pittsburgh Steeler fans it is time once again for the Steeler retro show my name is Brian Anthony Davis alongside me is my great friend Tony Defio we hop into that black and gold DeLorean we go back in time and I am so proud to go back to this date because it wasn't a great time in Pittsburgh Steeler history but doesn't mean that you're not going to have a great game Tony how
1: are you my friend I am great. What a, how fitting that we're going up to 1988 in our delorean. That's the first year I was eligible to drive. Same with me. I, uh, in yeah. fact, I failed my
0: driver's license the first time. I went to my dad. He was waiting for me. And I said, I failed. He goes, yeah, I knew. I, I said, how'd twice. you know? He said, you weren't taking it seriously. you ready to get <laughs> down to business. I'm like, yep. Four days later, I passed. Here we go. I mastered the parallel parking. Well, I don't think I ever will master the parallel parking, Tony.
1: Parking lots are our friends. <laughs>
0: That's a t-shirt quote. I love that, Tony. Yeah,
1: especially in Pittsburgh, yeah.
0: There you go. Well, let's get into this game, Tony. It's a classic between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Houston Oilers. And the Houston Oilers at the time were a playoff team. They were a playoff team in 1987 after all of those terrible years. And then they turn around and there's a rivalry budding with the Pittsburgh Steelers who were not in the playoffs for a long time. In fact, the 1984 season was the last time that team made the playoffs. And they were in a little bit of a drought, but there was a great rivalry between Chuck Knoll and Gary Granview, the coach of the Houston <laughs> Oilers. Now you're
1: laughing. So you know what Gary Granview means, don't you? Yeah. The, uh, the PA announcer at three river stadium, uh, I don't know if he made that mistake or if it was intentional, but it was in 1987 and that's, uh, and, that, and that's when it stuck forever.
0: Oh, it was on purpose because Chuck Knoll and Jerry Glanville did not get along Jerry Glanville was a whole lot rock and roll. Chuck Knoll was classical and they just did not gel. The last time these guys played, there was no handshake afterwards. There was nothing. In fact, Chuck Knoll gave him almost like the finger to the chest and he was wagging his finger at him
1: because Jerry Glanville had a reputation for being very disrespectful. He did, and his players uh, followed suit. I mean, they, that, that game you're referring to, I remember it was late 87 in, in the Astrodome, and there were a lot of fights, uh, the famous one with, with Frank Pollard and some guy from the Oilers, and, he, and Pollard ripped his helmet off because they were spearing Steeler players. They were hitting him late, and that's what Chuck Noll told uh, Glanville at the end of that game. You keep doing that, I'm going to get your bleep in trouble. And I think what he meant by that is I'm going to beat your bleep. <laughs> Which he could have done, too. He was a pretty big guy compared to Jerry Glanville. Yeah, there's nothing like
0: a, a butt bleeping. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Jerry Glanville went to high school in, I believe it was Perryville, Ohio, with another Pittsburgh coaching legend. Do you know who that was?
1: Would it be Dick LeBeau?
0: No. Uh, I don't he don't know went then. to high school with very own Jim Leland.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: Well, I was still on a birthday high on December 4th, 1988 because my 16th birthday was on the 3rd We had a party at my house. It was a Saturday night. It did pale in the comparison for the fact that the Steelers were on Sunday night football. And the Steelers weren't on Sunday night football a lot back then. When the Steelers were in prime time, it was always Monday night football. And that was an event, too. Not like it is now when we're old and we're like, oh, why are they on this late? I want to go to bed. (laughs) Right. But we got to stay up and watch the Steelers. I remember that, Tony. I'm sure you did, too. And I got to tell you, I was really excited for this game. Even though the Steelers were 3-10 and 10 at the time, they were a bad team coming in, getting ready to play a 9-4 and 4 team looking towards the postseason. Chuck Knoll, Jerry Glanville, we said they did not get along. Neither did these two teams. We expected there to be fights. There were fights in this game. The Steelers had Bubby Brister starting his 10th game in his NFL career. Merrill Hodge, he was the focus of the ground attack for the Steelers. Tunch Elkin was not out despite the sore shoulders. But Mike Merriweather was. He was holding out in this game, Tony. And he held out for the entire season. And they could have really used a great defender like Mike Merriweather. At the box office at the time in 1988, The Naked Gun with Leslie Nilsson was number one. Look Away by Chicago was the number one song. And December 4th, 1988 was a very rough day and could have been tragic. Thank goodness it wasn't for Gary Busey. Who was critically injured in a motorcycle accident? There was a lot of people that did not think he was going to survive that. He thankfully did. I don't know if he was has ever been the same since, but he did live, and he is in one of my favorite movies of all time that came out a year and a half earlier, *Lethal Weapons. So Gary Busey, thank goodness he pulled through, Tony.
1: Absolutely, yeah, because he was such a really good actor. But you know, like, like you said, at least he survived. Yes, absolutely.
0: Were the Steelers going to survive? They were going into the place they call the house of pain, Tony. It was going to be a really rough night if you were prognosticating this game, thinking the Steelers were going to have a lot of trouble. So let's get into it. Gary Anderson was in the middle of his fine career with the Steelers. He kicked the ball off to Leonard Harris, who brought it out to the 14-yard line and wouldn't you know tony 8 seconds in what happens
1: tempers flare yeah greg loy with the uh, late hit out of bounds and he was never he was never shy uh, about stuff like that and he's the he's the guy that uh, glanville called the meanest guy in football so it's probably no surprise that he he wanted to get him some even though his team was 3 and 10 After Mike Rozier was stopped on first down and Warren Moon went
0: up top and deep to Drew Hill, Dwayne Woodruff had great coverage and knocked the ball away. But Moon went back to Hill on third down to move the chains. But the Oilers got nailed on a Bruce Matthews clip and Greg Lloyd's unnecessary roughness penalty extended the drive as Houston moved into Pittsburgh territory. The fortunes would turn, though, Tony. Alonzo Highsmith, he fumbled. That fumble fell into the hands of rookie Darren Jordan after Cornell Gowdy knocked it loose at the Houston 35. The Steelers would have the ball. Do you remember Darren Jordan, number 55, and Cornell Gowdy, Tony?
1: Well, when I was re watching this game, I, I thought Darren Jordan was somebody else. Is that Jerry O, but he came a year later because uh, he wore number 55. But I, I didn't remember him, but I definitely remembered Cornell Gowdy. Kurt Gowdy used to remark that, that his teammates called Cornell Kurt because of the uh, the famous announcer. So I, that's why I remember him. I think he was a, the strike teams of 87. That's how we that's got on the Steelers initially. That's, that's, my, that's how my memory tells it anyway.
0: I believe that is very true. Uh, some other guys from that team a year earlier include Steve Bono, who was a quarterback in the league a long time for the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, Bobby Brister would then come out and get to work. With runs by Merrill Hodge, Warren Williams, and catches by Rodney Carter, the Steelers got down to the Houston 22-yard line. Gary Anderson came on for a 39-yard field goal. It seemed automatic. The announcers were saying it was going to be automatic because the Pro Bowl kicker had made 30 straight from that distance. But he shanked it left and the Oilers would get the ball back at their own 22. The Steelers had an opportunity to score first. They could
1: not at this particular juncture, and there was a reason why that kick went wide, Tony. The laces were in, just like on uh, Ace Ventura. The la- that, that, that means something. That wasn't just a fictional thing from a movie. That means something. Harry Newsom, the punter and the holder, uh, he did not have the laces out. Gary Anderson's streak ended. Now, after a Greg Montgomery punt,
0: the Steelers started out at their own 14. When Warren Williams gained a combined nine yards on a pass and a run, Brister was facing a third and one at the 23-yard line. The Steelers resorted to some trickery, and it definitely worked as Rodney Carter, number 24, took the pitch, and he lofted it to a wide-open Merrill Hodge for a 40-yard gain to the 37 of the hometown House of Painters. Behind Hodge runs and passes to Louis Lips the Steelers found themselves in field goal range. When Bristers heaved to lips in the end zone, fell incomplete. Gary Anderson came in for a 45 yarder. He knocked it straight through. The laces were out this time. It was three to zip with five seconds left in the first quarter.
1: Tony, they did get that lead back. Yeah, it was very important for them. Uh, Three and 10, you're thinking, you know, if you're the Oilers, you're probably thinking, if we can get up on, on them early, They'll look for a soft place to land and and, and kind of give up, but they were in this game the whole night and important that they got off to an early lead and they did with uh, Gary's field goal.
0: On the ensuing kick, Harris looked to be clear to run the ball all the way back for the score, but the tough, but diminutive Anderson made a touchdown saving tackle at the Houston 39 to end the quarter. The Oilers would score, though, on the ensuing series as runs by Rozier and Alan Pinkett and passes to Drew Hill led to a 36-yard Tony Zendejas field goal to tie the score at three with 10.18 to go before the half. So the Steelers' lead would be short-lived, or would it, Tony? Zendejas launched his kickoff high in the Astrodome night and Dwight Stone fielded it at the eight-yard line what happened?
1: He took it 92 yards right up the left sideline, totally untouched. There were few people in the, in the league who had, who were quicker than him or faster than him. He had a, he had a four, 40 speed Dwight stone. He didn't have great hands, but when, when, once he got in the clear, you weren't going to catch him. And the thing I remember about this play is, is listening to it on, on inside the NFL a few days later, and Jack Fleming, the late great Jack Fleming, he was such a homer for the, uh, he was the Steelers announcer and him saying, go baby, go baby. The entire time that Dwight stone was going down the sideline, I'll never forget that it's It's one of my favorite plays of all time. He was a fine human being. He became
0: a police officer in the Charlotte Mecklenburg area. And he is a fantastic guy. He was not great with his hands, like you said, but when he secured the ball, he could blaze. And he was really fast for that time. You did not see a lot of four, two guys back in the 1980s. And that was the second 92 yard kickoff return for the Steelers on the season Rod Woodson got the other those guys both did kickoffs Tony so what we're going to do is we're going to come back right after this the Steelers are leading 10 to 3 on December 4th 1988 we're going to take a break on the Steelers retro show we will be right back right after this Welcome back to the Steelers Retro Show. My name is Brian Anthony Davis for BehindTheSteelCurtain.com.
1: Tony Defio. hey, Tony, he's with me. What's going on, my man? I am doing fantastic. This is one of my, believe it or not, even though it was, they were 5 and 11 that year, this is one of my favorite Steelers games ever. It was just so, so great to see them battle the hated Houston Oilers in the Astrodome on a Sunday night and, and late in the season.
0: Yes, it was. So we're in the second quarter now, and Houston was down 10 to three. They were a very big favorite in this game. Once again, the Steelers were three and 10. Houston had a nine and four record and they were looking to get to the playoffs, but they had their hands full with Chuck Knoll and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Bubby Brister making his 10th start. So Houston's down 10 to three. They would counter though. With Moon throws to Hill and Givens and runs by Rozier and Highsmith, the Oilers got to a third and two at the six yard line. Moon got flushed out and found the former Pittsburgh Mauler. Yes, he was the number one pick in the 1984 USFL draft of Pittsburgh and played his home games in Three Rivers Stadium. He found Rogier in the middle of the touchdown zone to cap off a 62-yard drive and nod the score at 10 with 644 to go in the half, Tony. Mike Rozier was a very good player. Do you
1: remember him in purple and orange for the Pittsburgh Maulers? I do. I was actually a big college football fan growing up. I still am, but I, I definitely remember him uh, playing for Nebraska and I was awestruck that, that he was able to, the Maulers were able to, to lure him away from the NFL. And it was uh, fun watching him play for the Maulers for, for one season anyway, but you talk about a talented uh, backfield. We talk about the uh, backfield we, we wish the Steelers would have today. Uh, Mike Rozier, Alonzo Highsmith, Lorenzo White, and Alan Pinkett. I don't know how the Oilers did it. It was obviously pre-cap days. But it was it was an incredible uh, backfield, and and, and Rogier was uh, probably at the top of the list.
0: Yeah, they really knew how to draft those guys. They really valued the running game as well as great receivers. Drew Hill, Ernest Givens, Willie Drury was there as well. You had some really good players, and they got more. That 1989 team that the Steelers upset in the playoffs a year later in Houston had even more weapons at wide receiver. They had all of the guys there. I mean, they had an offense like crazy. It's a wonder why this team never won a Super Bowl and never won multiple Super Bowls, Tony.
1: Absolutely. If you ever watched the A Football Life episode about the 93 Oilers, it chronicles their, their run from the late 80s through that 93 season and all the talent that they had on offense, even on defense, and, and the fact that they never even made it to an AFC championship game when you, when you look back on it, it's rather remarkable, and it just it just goes to show you the talent isn't everything, but when, when they were on, they were one dangerous football team.
0: Well, the Steelers came back and tried to uh, get the lead back. They struggled with a three and out, and that featured a Charles Lockett drop on a perfect Brister pass. Harry Newsom came out to punt. Warren Moon quickly went on the attack again with passes to Rogier and runs by Pinkett but the Steelers forced a Zendejas field goal when Gerald Williams, very good in this game, he was a second-round pick out of Auburn, he rushed Moon, who threw an errant pass away that Darren Jordan almost intercepted. After that Zendejas field goal, it was 13-10, to 10, and there were more scuffles, Tony. It didn't take long for the Steelers to answer, though. On the very first play after the touchback, Brister went up top to Lewis Lips down the right sideline. Number 83 burst past Steve Brown for the 80-yard score with 236 remaining before halftime. The Steelers led 17-14. to They did it with play action, Tony, and it was a beauty.
1: Oh, I, I still remember this play like it was yesterday. Uh, a very underrated receiver. And, and like, like we talked about in the past, probably somebody who was victim a victim of circumstance because he had to play for the Steelers in their post-Super Bowl days. But he he, he was one of their best deep threats ever. And, and he remarked before the game that that the Oilers weren't really good at, at man-to-man coverage, and he proved it on this play. And Bobby Brister, in many ways, was the most talented quarterback that they had between Bradshaw and Ben. And, and he had one heck of an arm, and he showed that off on this play. He really did, and he would find lips a few times later on
0: in this game as well. Would they be for touchdowns? Well, we don't know. After a three and out, the Steelers got the ball back. Brister brought the Steelers out with one fourteen remaining before the break. After runs and passes to Merrill Hodge, Ouija Thompson, there's a name for you out of Florida State, a Hmm. defensive holding penalty, got the Steelers down to the 38-yard line. Bubby tried a hail mary, but it failed incomplete. At halftime, the Steelers were shockingly leading this game, seventeen to thirteen.
1: It was a, a great first half for them, and hats off to Chuck Nolan, hats off to those players. If you watch this game, then and now, it's remarkable how emotional they were and how into it they were. For being three and ten, they could have just. Been ready for the uh, offseason to start, but they were they were looking to finish strong, and they, they were in this game all the way till the end. Yes, they were. After halftime, the Steelers looked to have a three and out,
0: but Robert Lyles got nailed for unnecessary roughness. There was a lot of this
1: on both teams, but this is what makes it strange. It was on a running play of all things. You're making it pretty obvious for the officials to throw a flag. It was a really uh, bizarre play uh, by, by the Oilers. Well, one of the things that you would get with Jerry Glanville teams
0: would be a lack of discipline. And it really showed in this game. And it showed throughout the entire tenure of the man in black. Normally, you never see an unnecessary roughness on the quarterback when he, after he hands off the ball. I'm sure it happens, but really not used to it.
1: Maybe it's a testament to Bubby's uh, play-action pass prowess. Maybe that's what it was.
0: (laughs) That very well could be. Bubby was sneaky there. Coming out from their own 28, Moon connected again to Drew Hill on the first play of a first down at midfield in front of Larry Griffin. Then a gain of 24 to Willie Drury, who was tackled by Thomas Everett. On the next play, Moon went for it all to a wide-open Drew Hill. But the
1: speed of Rod Woodson came into play when he recovered to knock the ball away. Maybe next to Ben, he's the finest stealer I've ever seen. He's he's just he was just an incredible talent, and 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 he showed it on his play. I mean, he got beat, but he had he had the speed to make up for it, knock the pass away in the end zone. And, and there's a reason why he's on the uh, 75 year anniversary team, and why he's the first ballot Hall of Famer. He's just he's just a he was a fantastic uh, special ta- uh, player. From there, the drive stalled, and Zendejas came on to try a kick from
0: 41 yards out, but it clanked off the upright for no points whatsoever. The drive to follow featured another bomb to Lewis Lips, who would burn Patrick Allen this time for 65 yards and a score. Before the game, the longest pass play against the Oilers was 58 yards, Tony. Lips had two of them. He had 65 and 80 in this game. That's absolutely incredible. You mentioned Lips before. This guy was truly electric.
1: He was a special talent. It's a shame that his career kind of fizzled out after the late 80s because I think he could have been a Hall of Famer himself. For when, when he was in his prime, there were very few receivers in, in, in the league who were better than him, and, and he deserves more credit than he gets as far as uh, his uh, his legacy. But But that's what happens when you don't when you don't play in the Super Bowl. So but but he was just a special uh, talented receiver. He also got beat up uh, by injuries at the end.
0: I think he had concussions as well. Um, So Lewis Lips did not have the longest career. In fact, I think it went from 1984 to 1991, maybe a little bit of 1992. When Anderson hit the point after the Steelers led 24 to 13, there was 656 left in the third. 24-13, to absolutely amazing. Here's the thing, though, Tony. These were the 1988 Pittsburgh Steelers. They were true to form on the very next play. When Lorenzo White fielded Gary Anderson's kick at the 10, you tell us the horror that came next.
1: Well, the guy that I wanted the Steelers to draft in the first round, instead of Aaron Jones, took the uh, kickoff 90 yards. He went untouched. And just when it looked like the Steelers were going to be in control of this game, 24 to 13, they're only up 24 to 20. And and the Steelers special teams that year was awful. Uh, Harry Newsom had six punts blocked. And, and of course, this, this, this kickoff return, it was just a a very bad year all the way around for the Steelers and, and uh, it was illustrated perfectly on this play. The Steelers still did have a lead though, but it was cut to four.
0: After three and out moon immediately went for the jugular by going deep to Hill from their own 35 rod Woodson who had perfect coverage on number 85 in blue was called for a phantom pass interference on the play Joe Theismann and Mike Patrick in the booth did not even think that this was interference call rod was hot and complained to the officials but to no avail the penalty resulted in 34 yards and that was a bad thing did you think that was a penalty I thought it was perfect coverage.
1: yeah it it, it was questionable at best
0: We talked about Thomas Everett being a torpedo. Well, he showed it here on the very next play. Ernest Givens went for a gain of 25 yards from Moon, and Everett knocked him into next week on a hit. Part of Givens' helmet came out and was resting. I mean, a big chunk of his helmet
1: was jarred loose, Tony. Clearly, the Steelers had a tight when it came to safety. He was another in a long line of, uh, of, of really good safeties that they've had over the years. Gerald Williams continued to wreak havoc on the defense and almost held the Oilers to a field
0: goal again, but Moon did it with his legs this time. He evaded Darren Jordan's sack and ran it wide right for the six. Zendayas tacked one on and the Steelers led 27 to 24 with 216 left in the third. An excellent return by Woodson this time allowed the Steelers to start out at their own 35. Merrill Hodge took a first down screen pass for a big first down to start things off. And then Rodney Carter ran for a first down on the next play. But the drive stalled when Robert Lyles almost got a pick six on Brewster. Anderson's 48-yard attempt was blocked and the Oilers got the ball to start the fourth quarter with a three-point lead. Looking for more, Jerry Glanville's Oilers couldn't convert when David Little deflected Moon's pass and the veteran Dwayne Woodruff picked off the pass for a second interception of the year. With the ball at their own 14, the Steelers were flat on three and out. But Larry Griffin picked off a long pass from Moon, and the Steelers were back in business again with another chance at the Houston 38. Aided by Lewis Lips reverse and a pass to Preston Gothard, there's a name for you. He started a couple years in the pros, Tony, for the Steelers at tight end.
1: Uh, A name from the mid-80s, if I ever heard one, Preston Gothard, number 86, before Eric Green, before uh, Heinz Ward. Yeah, he was better than both of them, wasn't he? He actually was, absolutely. (laughs) Let's just go with that.
0: Uh, Apologies if I ever meet Eric Green and Hines Ward. I'm just kidding. Uh, Merrill (laughs) Hodge walked in with 7.36 left in the game. It was Pittsburgh 31, Houston 27. But the Oilers were not done, Tony. Rozier reeled off one for 28 yards to get into Steeler territory, but the Steelers forced a Montgomery punt with 4.35 left in the game. The Steelers were not able to run out the clock, though, and went three and out. Moon could not take immediate advantage as Dwayne Woodruff. He did it again, Tony. He intercepted Warren Moon's second pass of the night, but the Steelers couldn't move the ball again and suffered another three and out. They had a great offense all game,
1: and they had two chances, and they could not close out this game. Uh, They couldn't get out of their own way, and and as you said, two two fourth-quarter Turnovers by the Oilers, and, 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 and Pittsburgh really could take, it, to take advantage of it, and especially here. This was a big turnover at that point in the game, that late in the game. If you can get a couple first downs, the game's over, but, but Pittsburgh just, they, they could not do it. With 241 left, the Oilers started from their own
0: 20-yard line, aided by a Greg Lloyd late hit, another one out of bounds. Passes to Givens and Harris and a run by Rogier. The Oilers got to the three-yard line. Then Moon did it again. He took it himself to pay dirt. The first time in his career that Moon had two rushing TDs in a game, and with one thirty left, the score was 34-30. to 30. Oilers, it looked really
1: bad here, Tony. It sure did. It, it, it felt like that was going to be you know, the, the famous uh, Don Meredith turn out the lights, the party's over. He, he sang that in the Astrodome, and that's what it felt like here. As, as we're about to find out, the Steelers had one, one last great drive in them. But
0: even in the worst of seasons, Tony, magic can be found. On a 2nd and 10, Rodney Carter took a screen pass 32 yards from Brister to the Houston 48. A run by Bubby got the Steelers to the 40, and Hodge converted on a 3rd and 2. The Steelers were inching closer to a field goal opportunity for a tie, but Carter did it again with an 18-yard gain on a short pass. A holding call on defense, gave the Steelers the ball on the 16-yard line. Then with 27 seconds left, Merrill Hodge took a pass over the middle. And what did he do, Tony?
1: He took it right off the middle for a touchdown. And, and I was jumping up and down in my grandparents' living room like they had just won the Super Bowl. That's how excited I was for this game.
0: There was no point after because Anderson hit the upright on the attempt and the Oilers Needed a field goal with 20 seconds left in this game. Anything could have happened. They couldn't make it work though. The clock runs out Glanville and Noel actually shook hands and the Steelers prevailed 37 to 34. You were jumping up and down on your couch. I was going crazy at home as a new 16 year old. And it just felt right in a terrible
1: season. That felt so good. Tony. It certainly did, and one funny anecdote from that night: my grandmother was asleep on the couch, and she woke up just to see, just in time to see Meryl Hodge pointing at the camera and going number one, and she blurted out, "Number one, your Because you know, they, <laughs> they were pretty bad that year. She was a big fan, but that uh, was pretty funny. Uh, it's something I'll never forget. But I, I was very excited about after this win, and, and I went up to bed. They sent me up to bed. And they said, "Will you settle down and just go to bed at school tomorrow?" I, I couldn't sleep. It was it was it was so great, and the kids the next day at school for it. We're talking about this game all day. It was just a a fun time to be a fan, even even, even if it's for only a week.
0: Yeah, and it felt really good. And the bad thing about it is they win this game, and they won two more at the end of the season, too. And the next thing you know, they are uh, getting the seventh round draft pick, and they are out of uh, contention for guys like Derek Thomas, like Deion Sanders, like Barry Sanders, like Troy Aikman. And they end up with Tim Worley who uh, was supposed to be good, but uh, just didn't work out that way. It didn't matter on this night. You're not playing for a draft pick. Those players aren't playing for a draft pick. You're still rooting for them to win. And I could never root for the Steelers to lose just to get a draft pick because I got to tell you, it feels so good to watch young players that have had a rough year Shock the world with a great win like this. And it was fantastic, Cody.
1: That was the furthest thing from my mind. I'm a, I was a big, a much bigger draft fan back then than I am now. I mean, I'm still into it, but back then I was obsessed with it, but that was the furthest thing from my mind. I, I was just all about them winning and, and finishing, finishing out the year strong. But uh, I have to agree with you. Looking back on it, it would have been nice to see Rod Woodson and neon Dion in the uh, same uh, secondary. That would have been, that would have been lethal for uh, opposing <laughs> oh. offenses, but but that, still, though, I, I had 30 years of memories from this game. So I, I, think, I think it was a nice trade-off.
0: Yeah, you know what I always say about the space-time continuum. It would have messed everything up that we have now. <laughs> the glory of December 4th, 1988. It was so great to talk to you about it, Tony.
1: It was fantastic. And I, I, I lived off this game for, for weeks afterwards. I mean, it really, I'm not, not even kidding. This was such a special game for me. I don't, I don't even know why. Uh, the Steelers were everybody's doormat in the AFC uh, Central back then all three teams just had their way with them. so for them to beat the Oilers and kind of ruin their season a little bit, pr- prevent them from winning the division, it, it, was a, it was a treat for me. Well, absolutely. We will be back next week and we're going to be talking about
0: another great road upset. One of my favorites of all time. We're going to go back. We're not going to tell you who it was, but we're going to go back to 1984 and it's going to be glorious, Tony.
1: Oh, another
0: magical Steeler year. So yeah, I can't wait to talk about that game. For Tony Defeo, my name is Brian Anthony Davis. Be safe, be true to yourself and be behind the steel curtain. And remember, you can take us away. We don't mind, but you better promise us we'll be back in time.